Our psalm tonight is Psalm 74, and the background to it is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And Beth is going to come down to read that story to us, and then we're going to say the psalm together. Tonight's reading is taken from 2 Kings chapter 25. Now Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He camped outside the city and built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, though the Babylonians were surrounding the city. They fled towards the Arabah, but the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army under the commander of the imperial guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to say together Psalm 74, and we'll do this in four different sections. Um, you'll, we'll all begin with the first three verses, then I'll say some verses, then back to you, and then I'll finish us off. So let's say together, O oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where, where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatches. hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. 
that God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please keep that open in front of you. I'm just going to read from John 2, but no need to turn to it. Hear the words of Jesus. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Many, I'm sure, will have heard of John Newton, writer of that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. Before he was a Preacher, him writer, of course, he was a slave trader, but he also published a number of books, and one of his early books was a collection of letters which he wrote. He originally never planned that they would be published, but they expressed the feelings of his heart to his various friends, and he called the book Cardiphonia, and those who know Greek would know that's a compound of uh, where we get um, cardiology from the Greek word for, for, for heart, cardia, and phonics. That's about expression, voice, cardiphonia. It means the utterance of the heart. And what he'd written in those letters, which were not designed to be published, was the passion of his heart expressed to his friends. And when I remembered the title of that book, it occurred to me that the Psalms could well be called cardiphonia. Because here we have the psalm is speaking very much from the heart. It's one of the reasons why these psalms are so greatly loved. We've got all the great doctrines of the Bible 
here in the Psalms. God as creator, God as redeemer, God as judge, God as the sovereign one. But here we have the psalmist expressing what it feels like to live within these truths, inhabiting them, believing them. We have the story of the Bible in the Psalms. And we looked at Psalms 1 and 2, which set the, the scene, the introduction for the whole of the Psalter. And Psalm 2 tells the story, which is the big story of the world. It's the big story of the Psalter. It's the story of God creating the world, everything being spoiled by human sin. God determined to put things right. He's promising that his king, his divine son, will come, and then all will be well. And the Psalms not only tell the story, but here the psalmist speaks about what it feels like to inhabit that story, rejoicing in the fact that God has already begun to bring those promises to fulfillment, and yet mourning the fact that there's still a long way to go. We still live in a world surrounded by the enemies of God. Cardiphonia. And we have here expressions of loves and longings, of griefs and groans. It's very encouraging, very moving to feel the heart of the psalmist. At times, though, very challenging. Cardiphonia, it's a new word that he invented, I think. Cardiograph, that's a more common word. Maybe if you've got heart problems, it, the, the, the cardiograph is designed to, to, to kind of measure the heart. And as the heart is measured, you get a sense of whether it's a healthy heart or not. And you might say that the Psalms, not only the expression, the utterest of the psalmist's heart, they're also a test for us. And as we look at the heart of the psalmist, the question comes, does my heart beat like this. And very often, I think, we'll find, well, not enough, if at all. But does my heart beat? I'm not talking about the physical heart here, but the passions, what the theologians call the affections. What excites me? What moves me? We're all to, to varying degrees. It'll vary, of course, depending on which uh, community we grew up in, which country, and so on. But to, to varying degrees, we're all products of a culture that is largely, or at least has been, largely uncommitted. A culture that hasn't really believed in absolutes. In fact, suspicious of those who do believe in absolutes and truth because of the way in which those who believe in truth have manipulated. It's regarded as a, a power play. As the poet put it, the best lack all conviction. Well, they're the ones to be modeled. Those with conviction, they're a bit scary. And that's the culture that has given birth to many of us. The great value, not truth, but tolerance. Here are the striking words of Dorothy Sayers, one of the public Christian intellectuals of the, I suppose, middle of the last century, born just down the road in Brewer Street. She said this, in the world it's called tolerance but in hell it's called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, enjoys nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. Kind of whatever generation. A generation that will certainly not produce anything like the Psalms. It's an indifferent 
generation. And certainly, as you read the Psalms, there's no indifference here. There are passions. Now, given the instinct for worship that God has placed within every human heart, well, we're going to latch on to something. But so often, it's been channeled into celebrities, commodities. So as a generation, we could be more excited by the gossip on social media and the production of the latest machine than things that really matter. But you might think, hang on, that doesn't chime with what I think is going on. And I suspect that's partly because there's been something of a reaction against that kind of whatever generation. Truth is back in. For a younger generation, many of you are in that younger generation, authenticity is the great value. Truth. But what kind of truth? You've got to be true to yourself. And passion is back in. It's one of the signs of authenticity, the expression of passion. But, but what moves us? Is it the things of God? Very often, our passions are driven by our egos. A friend of mine went into a coffee shop not long ago, and he saw a sign on the coffee shop that said, Who is awesome? And the reply came underneath, You are awesome. That's the message the world is saying. You are awesome. At least you should feel awesome. So what drives our passions? Well, when you think I'm awesome, when I seem to be doing well, when you like what I post on social media, as if I did, then that makes me feel good. My passions are aroused. But when you snub me, when you demean me, when you ignore me, when you surpass me, well, I'm crushed. My passions are aroused in a very different direction. The Psalms, not just cardiophonic, but cardiographic testing our hearts. And the question comes, does my heart beat like this? What gets my pulse racing? What gets my stomach churning? What gets my tears flowing? The world is saying, who is awesome? You are awesome. The Psalms say, Psalm 68 verse 35, you, God, are awesome. It's the concept that God is awesome that drives the passions of the Psalms. Sometimes brings great comfort and joy. At other times, confusion and sorrow, as in this Psalm. Because here we've got a disconnect between the, the realization, the knowledge, the trust that God is awesome, he's great, and yet look at the mess that's going on in the world. How can this be, God? Why don't you do something? So we're looking today at Psalm 74, and we've moved into book three of the Psalter. And although you can overdo, I think, that the structure of the Psalms, there's something in it. Books one and two largely dominated by the Psalms of David. And this disconnect between Psalm two that told us that one day God's king will be installed on Zion, his holy hill, and all his enemies will be crushed, and all the world will be well, and then we find God's king is anointed, David, and yet he's on the run. He's despised and rejected of men. And these psalms of lament flow from that disconnect. And at the end of book two, Psalm 72, we've moved on from David. Now we're told it's a psalm of Solomon. Maybe 
by Solomon, more likely about or for Solomon. It's a psalm that expresses great confidence. David's gone, but we're looking forward to a future king. And David himself was told in 2 Kings 7, 2 Samuel 7 rather, that a king of his line would be the great king. And when he comes, God will sort everything out. So we're looking forward to that. Maybe in book three, that's the kind of king we'll be introduced to. But book three is very gloomy indeed. And here in Psalm 74, we have a psalm that's, as one friend of mine puts it, smells of exile. It describes a world in which the city's been destroyed and the king has been deposed. And the psalmist doesn't look within. It's not a woe is me, because I should be awesome, and now my life isn't awesome, and this is miserable. It's God-focused from beginning to end. Look at how it starts. Oh, God. Three sections, verses 1 to 11. I'm calling that, Why, Lord? And here's his bewilderment at God's inactivity. Verses 12 to 17, But you, Lord, he reminds himself of God's greatness. And that flows into the last section, verses 18 to 23. Rise up, Lord. He prays for God's intervention. So verses 1 to 11. Why, Lord? Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Despite his circumstances, he turns not away from God, but towards God with a cry of faith. But it's important to remember that it's not doubting to ask questions. This is a man of faith confused, and he draws towards God. And so often, faith doesn't simply bring a cozy comfort. When I was first a Christian a number of years ago now, uh, there were lots of Christian bookshops, and posters were sold in the Christian bookshops, and they'd often be in the wall the Christian bookshops, and you'd see cozy, cute cats and dogs looking very, very snugly, and underneath some Bible verse, and lots of people would have them on their walls. And the impression was, that's the Christian life. That cat, all shriveled up and just sitting, peace and comfort. And of course, it's not always like that, is it? You read the Psalms, it's not always like that. And sometimes belief in the great truths of God does not mean that you're calm. Actually, belief in the great truths of God makes it harder because I don't get it, God. Why? Why are you allowing this to happen? Not why have the Babylonians done this, but notice why have you done this, verse 1. Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? We're your people. And you've let this happen to us, the description of what happens goes beyond the rather prosaic account of 2 Kings 25. Here's an insider's account, describing it often in very vivid language. Verse 4, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. That magnificent temple where the living God choose to put his focus, his name 
was focused on that place, that people could come and meet with God who'd be there at the Holy of Holies, that had joyful assembly. And now these pagan armies roared in there like animals, baying. Perhaps they roared cries of celebration. They've won, taunting these pathetic people who actually thought that their God was not just their little national God. That was usual in the ancient world. They dared to think that their God was the global God, the God who'd made all nations and the whole of creation. It's pathetic. And how they roared in delight. And then they placed their flags in key places around the temple. Regimental flags, I take it. Declarations of their victory over this pathetic God. Verse 5, they behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. We've been through dense undergrowth and there's all this wood and there they are hacking it desperately to get through. But this is the temple. You don't hack around the temple. A place of beautiful furnishings and and they hacked it down. And then, having reduced it to rubble, verse 7, they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. Some of us have Ukrainian friends. A number of Ukrainians come to this church. It's very painful talking to them as they describe how they feel about what's happening in their country. This is not a news item. But they're seeing places that they've known left in rubble. I'm going to bring it close to home. How would we feel if the streets of Oxford were bombed down? Some of the landmarks, the Sheldonian, the Radcliffe Camera, Christchurch Cathedral, bombed the smithereens. Well, that gets very personal. But the cry here is not, is, is not so much, look, what's happened to our homes? What's happened to our city? But rather, what has happened to your house, Lord? Verse 4, the place where you met with us. Verse 7, the dwelling place of your name. And this gets very close indeed. When you remember that the New Testament tells us that in these new covenant days, the temple of God is the people of God. We're remembering today on Pentecost Sunday that the Holy Spirit comes to live within us individually and corporately. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And God's name is attached to us. And yet look what's happening. The church around the world some places, this kind of violence doesn't seem over the top to describe what's happening to the churches. One of his stories I've heard from a friend who's an archbishop in Nigeria. He tells me he advises his clergy not to go together as a family to church in his area, northern Nigeria. Because if they go together, they could all be wiped out by a terrorist, so better for them to go to different churches on a Sunday. We've heard news just this week of a town in India where churches have been destroyed, Christians have been murdered. This is happening. But what about our country? 
you go to Boars Hill, Kingsley Hill, any of the hills around Oxford, you, you look and you'll see the Dreaming Spires of Oxford. They're, they're, they're legendary. And just about every one of those Dreaming Spires is a church that used to be full of people, and now very few people in church. A number have been turned into libraries, music venues. You watch the coronation. It was wonderful. And I think many people were surprised how Christian it was. A reminder of the profound way in which the Christian gospel shaped our culture and was right at the center of national life. And yet now most people look at that as a rather quaint anachronism. It doesn't represent the reality today. So whereas all the newspapers, even when I was younger, would have a religion correspondent, and most of what they were doing was describing what was going on in the church, now virtually none of them will have that. And if ever church news enters public consciousness. It's normally a scandal or news of some division. But what's happened? The church feels like a, a charred ruin. And aren't we conscious of the failings of our own lives and of our own church? Do we care? Do we care more for what happens to our sports team? Do we shed tears over some fictional character in a movie who's never existed, never will exist? But that moves us more than what is happening to the temple of God, the church. Why, Lord? Why don't you do something? Verse 10, how long will the enemy mock you? Why don't you just take out your hands from your pocket and do something? Verse 11, why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. Do something, God. And here we have the emotions, the passions of the psalmist. The psalms give permission for us to feel these thoughts, actually encourage us to feel these thoughts. Don't we care? Challenge us when we don't feel these thoughts. Why, Lord? But then a very, very different mood from verse 12 onwards. The word but indicates a shift. I'm sure when this was sung, there'd be a different key, a different tempo. Now we turn from the horror of the destruction and bewilderment about God's inactivity to a reminder of God's amazing greatness. Verse 12 is the central verse of the psalm. The whole heart psalm hinges on it. It's, it's the focus. If we remember anything, this is what we should remember. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. As we've seen already in this series of the psalms, we've got to learn not just to look out at our circumstances or in at our feelings, but to look up. There may have been no king in Judah at the time, but that did not mean the throne was empty. God is my king from long ago. And Israel's experienced God's sovereign power over many generations. This is not a new relationship. And there are ample, ample reminders of the fact that this is a God who can be trusted. Track record matters, doesn't it? 
So if I just met you, and I'm a bit worried, maybe you've let me down here. I can't quite work it out. Well, I've just met you. I'm probably going to assume maybe you have let me down. But if I've known you for years and years and years, and time after time after time, you've been there for me. And when you've said you've done something, in the end, you've done it. Well, that's a decent track record. I'm not going to immediately assume, oh, you've let me down. I'm going to assume there might be some other explanation, or you'll come around and do it in the end. And here is the psalmist looking at the devastation of the temple. It's been there, as far as we can tell, for years. And God hasn't done anything. But those years of the exile are nothing compared to the centuries of God's faithfulness to his people. But you, Lord. And this refrain, it was you, it was you, it was you. It was you, verse 13, who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. This is a reminder of the Exodus. And again, we, we've seen the history books might tell the story fairly prosaically. Here we have the story of the book of Exodus in glorious technicolor. It's almost cartoon-like. It's a kind of Marvel movie type. Here's some sea monster. That's Egypt. The prophet Ezekiel describes Pharaoh and the, the kingdom of Egypt as a, as a mighty sea monster. It's, it's a good description of evil. And all of the nations quake at this wicked monster. But God parts the Red Sea so the people of Israel get out from the slavery of this monster and then destroys it. And it's left as just dog food the other nations. It was you, verse 14, who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. You didn't just take us out of Egypt, but you fed us and you gave us water, even from the rock as we journeyed through the wilderness. And then you enabled us to pass through the River Jordan. And not only are you the God who demonstrated your power through redemption, you're the God of creation. It was you, verse 17, who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. You put everything in its place. Now we look at a world of disorder. Well, there was disorder before you put everything in its place in creation. And the God of creation can bring new creation, can restore all things. It was you. Psalms encourage us not just to remember these truths, but to see them deeply, to feel them deeply. Ralph Davis, who's an Old Testament commentator, describes how when uh, he and his wife come home from being away, the dog is so excited that there it is in the backyard, and it goes round and 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 round again. And he's saying it's a bit like that with biblical poetry. It doesn't just say something. Because the Israelites knew all this. This is old hat. God is the creator. God is the redeemer. You could say that in three or four words. Do you remember Psalm 1? The blessed one meditates on the law of the Lord, allows it to sink in. And the poetry and the music help us not only to see these things, but to feel them so they'd sink in. This is the God we worship. That's why we sing songs. It's one of the goals of preaching one of the ways in which I feel most inadequate as a preacher. Because my task is not just to teach truths and explain them, but with the help of the Holy Spirit, 
the longing is that we might feel these truths, that they impact the heart. Why, Lord? That's where we begin. But then, but you, Lord, lift your eyes to remember. God can do great things. He's done them before. He can do it again. And that leads to the final section, verses 18 to 23. Rise up, Lord. This is a section that I, I think most need to hear. I'm inhabiting the early verses of Psalm 74. Much more than I've done, I think, in the whole of my Christian life in recent years, the last two, three, four years. I've seen the horrors of what's happening in the church around the world, close to home, in our churches around the country, scandals, disappointments, half-heartedness. I think I've wept about that more than I've ever done in my Christian life. The danger is I wallow in that sadness. I don't do the next stage of looking up at you, Lord. Sometimes I do that. But having done it, I mustn't stop there. I need then to turn it into prayer. Verses 18 to 23, rise up, Lord. Taken from verse 22, rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Again, this is not a self-obsessed prayer. Now, God cares about the little details of our lives. We are to pray for our daily bread. But the Lord's prayer begins, hallowed be your And that's the great desire of the psalmist. Defend your reputation. Verse 18, remember how the enemy has mocked you, how foolish people have reviled your name. Just think of the enemies of God around the world, sometimes conscious enemies of God, trying to snuff out the church. Look for your name's sake, do something. In communities where the name of Christ is hardly heard, This is the great driver of mission. It's what has led many, even from this church, to go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. It's what's driven many to give and to pray. Defend your reputation. Next, verse 19, save your people. Don't hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Here's an image of of a helpless creature wild dove. And if the wild beasts get close to it, well, you've seen what a cat can do to a bird. Just think what wild beasts can do. And the church without the innovation of God is completely helpless. Oh Lord, don't hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Don't forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. And here's a challenge to pray for the persecuted church. Organizations like Open Doors will give you information about the church under huge pressure around the world. Lord, have mercy. It's a motivation to pray for our own church, pray for the Church of England in such a turmoil at the moment. Child ruin of what it could and should be. The danger of turning away from biblical truth and endorsing what is sinful, blessing what is sinful. Lord, have mercy. Save your people. Verse 20, remember your covenant. Have regard for your covenant because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. 
It's a very powerful argument for parents, isn't it? You said, you said. You told us we'd have ice cream this afternoon. You said. Well, God has said. He made amazing promises. Promises that one day the world will be put right. He'd do it through his king. And here the psalmist said, Lord, do what you said you'll do. Don't forget your covenant. This cannot be the end for your church. In ruins. Rise up, O God. May your king come. Don't ignore, verse 23, the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies which rises continually. Even if you won't listen to our prayers pleading your covenant, at the very least, listen to those enemies taunting you. May that be a reason for you to rise up and do something. Well, if we're shocked by the desecration of the temple all those years ago, there was a far greater desecration when the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth. He was, is, the ultimate temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth, found not in a building but in a person, the divine Son of God. And you'd think surely people would bow down and worship. But they spat at him. They mocked him. They flogged him. They crucified him. And then he died. There's never been a darker day than that Saturday after they buried him. But God remembered his covenant. And Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus had promised, wouldn't he? Destroy this temple and God would raise it, raise it again in three days. And sure enough, the, the ultimate temple, the Lord Jesus Christ, was raised. God has answered this prayer, at least in part. We've got far greater evidence of the amazing grace of God than they did then. God's temple has come. It's been raised in Jesus. He's ascended to the right hand of God. And one day, he'll come again. And in the meantime, as we look around at the, the degradation of God's church, we pray, come Lord, come Lord Jesus. Your kingdom, come. Close with some words of a hymn that some of us know well, an old hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Here's one verse. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. The cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Loving Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us to feel what we should feel. See you in your awesome greatness as creator and redeemer. And then with urgency and confidence to plead with you for your namesake to build your church and to send your son again to put everything right. And we pray in his name.